to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Again, um, we are in the fourth Sunday of Advent. We're going to be looking this morning at the concept of love. And we've been going through this series called Hope for a Weary World and how Jesus brings hope to us. And we're looking at how he does so as a demonstration of his love. And as we do so this morning, um, I, I, I'm just kind of buzzing after our service last night, our lessons and carol service. It was a beautiful, beautiful service. Um, we will be make, making this an annual tradition. I think once you've done it twice, it's annual. So uh, we're doing this again next year. And so, um, it, but it was a, it's a beautiful picture of that. And a big thank you as well to, we've had a team from uh, River Chase Baptist Church kind of here on this fourth row, um, these folks right here. Uh, big thank you uh, for being here this weekend. They help um, give a coffee and the tea on Friday morning in the pouring rain. Uh, they set up everything on, on Friday and Saturday, came and set up this morning and helped tear down today. Just big thank you. They're one of our partners as a church that help us be a church. And so you need to know that there are other churches and other Christians from around the country who give money, who pray, who send people so that there could be a, a faithful, life-giving, gospel-preaching church in Jamaica Plain. And so we are here because of the prayers and the sacrifices of other people. So make sure you tell them thank you uh, when you see them today. Uh, but as we dig in, I want to just kind of recap what the last several weeks have looked like. We looked in week one at Hope uh, from Zechariah's story. And each one of these has been a little bit like a song. Uh, Zechariah prophesies, and uh, he's prophesying as he's holding his son, John the Baptist, uh, after a long period of barrenness, of infertility. Um, he, ha- he and his wife Elizabeth have a son, and it's this picture of hope and hope in such a way that exhibits the hope that Israel had been longing with. They had felt hopeless as if a Messiah would never come after 400 years of silence and God comes through. And so Zechariah sees this as a picture of what God is going to do. And, and, and he sees that John the Baptist is going to be the one to tell everyone about the coming Messiah who is Jesus. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we looked at Mary and about how Mary sang with such joy and her magnificent that she understood her humble estate that God had honored her and blessed her. And because of that, she magnified the Lord and her spirit rejoiced in God, her Savior. And the idea from that is that God blesses the humble and that the humble receive joy. Then last week, Tyler Speck, who is uh, being installed as an elder at City on a Hill Brookline this morning, we're so excited to hear about that. He gave an incredible word uh, on peace from Simeon's story after the birth of Jesus. Uh, And Simeon had been waiting his entire life, and his one prayer was that he would stay alive long enough to see the Messiah. And he believed that he could die at peace because he was able to see the Messiah. And the takeaway from that for us is that as we come into the presence of God and we give God our attention, he gives peace for our restless hearts. And today we're wrapping this up as we look toward Christmas and the idea of love. And as we look at Advent, if this is new for you, you may often think of the time from, you know, Thanksgiving to Christmas as the Christmas season, or if you're one of those people who turn on Christmas music in like July, the entire year is Christmas season. Um, But really, I think it's important that we understand Advent and that Advent leads us to Christmas. 
Because there's a certain longing in Advent that prepares us for the joy that Christmas brings. And so as we enter into Advent, there's a season of longing, a longing for, for hope, a longing for joy, a longing for peace, a longing for love, um, that we see that it comes from the nation of Israel. Someone's doing construction in the back. I don't know what's going on. Um, rented space. What are you going to do? Um, uh, they're entering into uh, Israel's longing for the day when a Messiah would come uh, and restore the world and make all things right. And so what we do is we rehearse that longing. We remember that longing because Jesus has come, but he's going to come again. And we don't have to work too hard because simply we live in a restless world. We live in a world that feels hopeless. We live in a world that feels heavy and feels dark. And we see that as we do so, it prepares us for the joy of Christmas because Advent longing leads to Christmas celebration. Advent longing prepares us for the joy of Christmas morning as we remember that good news has come and that a Savior was born into this world. Some, some of us are really good at waiting and anticipating. My wife, I love her, is not. Um, she is one of those people who gives gifts away like the moment she buys them. She's, she's just so excited and so joyful. And we were talking about this and I got permission to give this example. And she's like, I just want you to be happy. And I'm like, thank you. And she's like, do you want your gift early? I'm like, absolutely, I want it early. I want it now. Uh, but part of the joy of Christmas is waiting. It's the building and the anticipation that overflows into happiness on Christmas morning as we wait for joy to come. And we've tried to model that as a family. We try to be very slow on Christmas Day. We get up um, from the very beginning of our marriage. We would, we would get the stockings, and then we would make breakfast. We'd make French toast and sausage and, and orange juice, and, and we'd be very slow. Instead of like tearing into the presents, we'd open up one set of presents, and we'd call my family, and then we would open up another set of, fam- of presents and call Amy's family in Alaska, because they wouldn't like to be called at three in the morning when our kids got up, all from the time difference. And we take a very slow approach, an intentional approach to Christmas. But oftentimes, and I'm tempted to do the same thing, we approach Christmas, particularly the birth of Jesus, and we miss its weight because we don't slow down. We've become so familiar, even if you're not a Christian, even if you don't, you're not, haven't been involved with a church, the idea of Christmas and even the birth of Jesus has become something that's just kind of familiar. Now, when you think of Christmas, I think of Christmas movies. So I want to know, what is everyone's favorite Christmas movie? Yes, that's a Christmas, that's, yes, that's a Christmas movie. Any, it is a Christmas, we're not going to debate it, it's fine. It was settled in an ecumenical council back in the fourth century, we know. Um, but anybody, what, are your, what are your favorite Christmas movies? Why Christmas? The, the, the Grinch, Home Alone, Elf, like Christmas Vacation. We could go down the list of, oh, we, we don't have all day. We, 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 uh, we could go down the list of everyone here's favorite Christmas movie. And as you become familiar with your favorite Christmas movie, there are two ways to approach it. You can approach it with a certain wonder and awe that grabs your attention, and you begin to see things, no matter how many times you've watched that you, that you never saw before. There are aspects that hit you a little bit differently this year maybe than last year, or you just kind of have it on in the background. And we can approach Christmas that way, and particularly the birth of Jesus, because we'll sing about Jesus, we'll talk about Jesus, we'll have presents on Christmas morning, but we never slow down long enough to consider what we're actually saying or what we're singing. 
It's kind of just on in the background. We don't think about why we celebrate because we sing about peace and hope, but there's a disconnect in our lives where we think that the ideal doesn't seem very likely. And so we talk about the birth of Jesus in these very rosy terms. They kind of gloss over the rawness of the nativity scene that a child is being born into the world. And we read it a little bit like a fairy tale, and we kind of imagine that kind of like once upon a time. Like once upon a time, this thing happened, and we kind of put a bow on it, and it's this nice story. But if you look at the beginning of Luke chapter 2, we see that this occurs during a census. This occurs under Caesar Augustus, who was a real emperor. This was information being tracked by the Roman Empire. It happened in a real city, as as chapter 2, verse 4 says, as Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem, the city of their ancestors. This was a real event, not just a fairy tale to make us feel warm, but it was something to deal with real sin and give real joy and peace and hope. And the reason why that God does this is what John 3, 16 says, that For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is a story of love and life and death. And so when you see the familiar story of Jesus and you wonder at it, you rest in it, you slow down and receive the good news of great joy that God gives us through the birth of his son, it takes on a different shape. The birth of Jesus is about love. It's about light bursting into the darkness. And it's a type of good news that upends life and changes everything. Or it is, as Tim Keller says, the revolutionary message of Christmas, the gospel, is the ideal has become real. Life as it should be has broken into life as it is. And what you realize through this is that Christmas confronts you And if you're honest, it challenges you because a real Savior has come. So let's look at how the birth of Jesus changes everything. Firstly, the birth of Jesus shows us as we are. It's like a mirror looking into our souls. And we see what we are like in Mary and Joseph. And it's been said that the nativity is a brutal scene. It's a brutal scene because Mary and Joseph are doing what they're told to do. They're called by Caesar Augustus to go and fulfill the census. And what they had to do during the census was go to the town of their ancestry because you can imagine there was no internet back then, no ancestry.com. So you had to go to where the records would be. And so uh, Joseph goes to where his family was from. But we see where Joseph was living, and he was not living in a very nice neighborhood. He was living in Galilee. In a little town called Nazareth. I want you to imagine the most redneck, rundown place you could possibly imagine. If you go to Zillow, it's got the highest crime rating. No one wanted to live there. Terrible housing value. Everybody's moving out. And it's, it's such an awful place that Nathaniel, when told that Jesus was from Nazareth, said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Can anything good come from that neighborhood? We also see the poverty of Mary and Joseph. They're extremely poor. As was mentioned last week, Mary and Joseph, when they came to the temple, brought turtle doves because they were too poor to bring a ram or a sheep or a bull. They were rejected. It says here that he was from the house uh, and the lineage of David. Now, if you know the Bible, that should stick out to you, which meant that at one point, Joseph's family was royalty. At one point, they were the ones who were ruling over Israel, and now he has fallen to a place on such hard times that he has been 
exile to a place that nobody else wants to live. And he goes into a town where supposedly he has family, and yet no one will take him in. He's maligned. You see this in verse 5, that to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, the words betrothal and to be with child is a scandal. Because betrothal is kind of this halfway point in the old world between engagement and marriage. Like here we have engagement, you get a hashtag, and then you get married. Like that's how things work. That's not how it worked then. You would be betrothed. You were legally married, but you weren't consummating the marriage. There was no sexual relationship going on between them. So for her to be pregnant signaled that something unvirtuous went on. Other people were looking at this and saying, how is she pregnant if you're not yet officially married. Jesus was not born in a hospital. He was born in a manger. This is not where you imagine having your child. Some of our friends, Andrew and Leah Lang, a couple months ago, had their son in the backseat of a car. They are former members of City on a Hill who moved last spring. They did not imagine as they were putting together their birth plan, let's have it in the back of our Subaru. They were not thinking that. Jesus was born and, and placed in a feeding trough. And as tradition tells us, it was likely either in a cave or possibly in the poor home of a distant relative where animals would have been living inside the house and there was no bed for Jesus. They simply put him in the manger. We see the brutality of this, that Mary had a baby. Having a baby is a traumatic experience upon the body. I am a man. I don't understand what that's like. I'm convinced that women are way tougher than men. It was once, I once heard someone say that God created pregnancy so women would understand what it was like for men to have a cold. We are not tough. Mary and Joseph are the picture of desperation. They're destitute. They're hopeless. And they show us as we are. We're desperate to be loved and known. We feel destitute because we're, we're unable to achieve goodness or fulfillment on our own. And there is no hope if we're honest with ourselves But we also see ourselves in the lives of the shepherds. Chapter 2, verse 8, it tells us, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, when we imagine shepherds, we kind of think, oh, how cute. They play with sheep all day. It was a dirty job. It was a gross job. They smelled like sheep. Have you ever been around a a sheep? They smell like sheep. They smell like livestock. It was dirty. It was really, really, really rough work. And some people even saw shepherds as untrustworthy. And in fact, in the ancient world, people like Aristotle considered them outcasts. He actually called them lazy, idle, and aimless. And this shows us as we are. And what it shows us is this is who Christmas is for. It's for the poor in spirit. It's for those who admit that they need a savior, that Jesus was born to step right in the middle of everything that is broken and to make it new. And I think the most beautiful thing about the gospel is that the first recipients of the gospel were the poor, the downtrodden, the untrustworthy, and the outcast. That is who Jesus came for. Not for people who have it all together, not for people who are buttoned up, not for people who are able to follow all the rules completely, but for people who needed a savior And for some of us, it's easy for us to admit that because you know that you're hurting. You know that you're struggling. You you know that you're guilty. You feel your shame. But for others of us, we're trying to outwork and overcome and outrun our brokenness. And so we say, I'm just going to be successful. 
I'm going to work as hard as I possibly can. I'm going to have more money than I did when I was growing up. I'm going I'm to raise my status to a level that I finally made it. I'm going to get some stability in my life. I'm going to build safety and comfort, and I'm not going to let anything or anyone hurt me. We're trying to outrun it. And some of us even do this by trying to be religious. We say, you know, I'm a really good person. I do all the right things. I follow all the right rules. But what you're saying to God when you say that is, God, you deal with me on my terms. I'm actually greater than you because you serve me in my interests, and I only consider you good if my experiences determine that you're good. But those approaches to God don't work, and here's why. Not only does the birth of Jesus show us as we are, it shows us who God is. It shows a mirror into our own souls and what we're like, but it also shows us a comparison to the greatness of God. And the manner in which Jesus came should humble us because on one hand, Jesus comes in utter weakness. He came in utter weakness. There's a saying that some people were born on third base and think that they hit a triple. If you don't like my baseball analogies, that just means that somebody was handed a lot of stuff and think that they, thought that they earned it. To extend that analogy, Jesus wasn't even born on the field. He was born into poverty, into obscurity. He, he didn't come into Caesar's house. He was born under Caesar's census. If we were writing the story, we'd say we want, we'd want Jesus to come from a powerful lineage and a powerful family. You know, it's like after Queen Elizabeth died, they didn't go find the guy selling shoes at the mall. They had King Charles III, even though he was like 107 years old, and he finally got to be king. He was the one raised in the house. He was the one that taught what it looked like to be royalty. That's where we imagine the king of kings coming from, but yet he was born to a poor family in a manger in poverty and obscurity. Born into a really weak position, being vulnerable, living hand to mouth, and he was experiencing what most people in the world experienced at the time. He was born human. He was frail. He was a tiny, little, frail baby. One of the funniest things I've ever seen is we've known Matt and Heather Waldrop for like over 10 years. And the first time that Matt Waldrop ever held a baby was when he held Amelie, our youngest. And he literally held her like this to start. He's like, I don't really know what to do. They're, they're so frail. You don't, you don't know what to do with a baby. Babies are dependent. The, the, the God of the universe was swaddled with linen cloth. Think about that. Wrapped and kept safe by a teenage mother. The idea of swaddling, we still do that with a blanket. Kids love it because it's, it's comforting. My, my grandmother did not believe this when Addie, our, our other daughter, was, was a baby. My grandmother would go into her room and unswaddle her and then come back into the living room. We'd hear her crying and we'd walk in there and we'd swaddle her back. And we finally realized what she's doing. And she said, I, I think she's uncomfortable. I'm like, no, you keep waking her up. Like children want to be swaddled. Jesus was dependent like that. Jesus was, was limited in his earthly body. He was like us in every way, but on the other hand, he's not like us at all. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. It says, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, to the, to the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the, with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host 
praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus came in glory. He was the Lord, not because he earned it. He was Lord at his birth. So what is the glory of God? Robert Stein says that the glory of God is the manifestation of God's presence among his people. With the birth of Jesus, the glory of God came to us. And it was often seen as a light, light shining. And when light is shining like this, it was both beautiful and exposing because what was their reaction? It was fear. They hit the deck. If you ever watch an alien movie and there's this great light in the sky, what does everybody do? They, they're scared because what they're seeing is so much greater than themselves. You know, I'm a, I'm a decent softball player. I love to play softball, love baseball. I'm like a church league seven, okay? That, that's where I'm at on the scale. Now, if you compare me to Xander Bogarts, we're not going to talk about it. I know it all hurts. He left for uh, San Diego. Um, I'm not very good. I, in fact, I'm terrible compared to Xander Bogarts. In the same way, when you run across a person of incredible integrity who just makes you feel like you're not that good of a person, it's intimidating. You might even hate them a little bit. You're like, they, they can't be that good. And what we do when we, we see somebody who is so much greater than us, we can do one of two things. We, we can, first of all, try to dismantle their, her, their character. We can look for any little thing to critique that person. Like, do you see the way that she chews her gum? That's a definite moral flaw. Like something's wrong with her. She didn't even have the decency to change the printer cartridge. Like we find all sorts of ways to dismantle character. Or you can look at someone and say, I think I should be more like them. They're, they're a goal I want to attain to. And when you look at Jesus and you look at Jesus in the Bible, you have one of two choices. You can try to dismantle the story. You can look at Jesus and you can try to say, well, you know, he's not really what the Bible says he is. You can downplay his demands on your life, or when you look at him and you read the Bible honestly, you begin to see that he really is who he says he is. He really is that good, and he really is that worthy, and you have to see this to understand the gospel. You have to see that Jesus is so much greater and so much higher than we are that an army of angels would sing his glory. Because if he's not that glorious, there is no good news. A God who is small cannot save. A God who is not worthy of all praise is not big enough or good enough or powerful enough to save us. And so if he is that good and he is that glorious, the only way to peace is through him. But what that also means is that he demands all glory and honor and praise as our Lord. John Piper says that if we want peace to rule in our lives... God must rule in our lives. Christ must rule in our lives. God's purpose is not to give you peace separate from himself. His purpose is to give you peace by being the most glorious person in your life. Is Jesus the most glorious person in your life? He deserves it as our God. But lastly, the birth of Jesus shows us God's love. It shows us as we are, it shows us who God is, and it shows us the love of God because looking back at John 3, 16, God so loved the world. The way, word so there means in this way or in this manner, God demonstrated his love. This is a story of love. It shows God's love for Mary and Joseph, that God honors and dignifies this poor overlooked couple 
in the middle of nowhere from a nowhere town, and he gives them the joy of a child. He honors Mary and says that all other people will call you blessed. And she was honored to be used by God. That all the scorn would give way to blessing. God saw them and knew them and recognized them in his love. We see God's love for the shepherds. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. When the angels went away from them, the shepherds, into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And that thing there means this word, this good news. And they went with haste, which means they hurried and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. There's something about babies that just make you smile. I don't care how tough you are. You see the, the kids around here, the baby's running around. You can't help but smile. They're getting into like the sixth granola bar of the morning. You just got to kind of smile at it. These hardened, rough shepherds smile and they tell this good news. Verse 17, and when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them, that God had entrusted this good news to those who often weren't considered trustworthy. He loved them. We even see God's love for Jesus, verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb, that God sent his son Jesus into a loving home. He sent his son Jesus into a home that he knew his, the mother and the father would raise him to be a faithful Jewish man so that he could one day fulfill the promises that God fulfills for us through him. But don't miss how the birth of Jesus shows God's love for you. See, how Jesus came and why Jesus came matters. It matters deeply because the story doesn't stop in a manger. The Christmas story doesn't stop with seven pounds, six ounce Jesus. The birth is the beginning. The birth is the beginning of the story, and that story leads Jesus to the cross. Peter Lightheart says that the baby in swaddling cloths becomes the crucified criminal in grave clothes. But he was unswaddled when he burst from the tomb. The baby laid in the manger becomes a crucified corpse, but death cannot hold him. The shepherds find baby Jesus, but when the woman, women came to minister to his body, he is not there. He traded swaddling clothes for graves, when a manger for a cross. There was no room in the end, so there would be room for you. So there are three ways that we can respond to this love for us. And these, these came from Tim Keller. The verse he says is that we need to hear well. We need to hear this good news well. I'm really struck at just how common the gospel is. Just how, how it came to ordinary people. The only miraculous thing in this is the angels come to the shepherds. They tell ordinary people the gospel. And then what happens? Those ordinary people turn around and the gospel spoken through them. So the gospel comes to ordinary people who heard it. And then it goes through ordinary people, people who told it. And it still does. The gospel comes to anyone who's humble enough to receive it. The good news of a crucified Savior who would give his life for you. And it still goes through ordinary people. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you've trusted him, I want you to think about the person who shared the gospel with you. They probably weren't some famous Bible teacher. They probably weren't somebody who knew Greek and Hebrew backwards and could, you know, it probably wasn't that person. 
It's probably someone who faithfully told you about the simple gospel that Jesus lived and died and rose again for you. It still comes to that, but we have to hear it and receive it. Mary did this. Verse 19, it said, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. It took her a while to understand it, but she took the time to listen. I was talking to someone this week about how people come to faith. And I think for some people, it's like a lightning bolt through the chest. Like you hear the gospel, you change, you give your life to Jesus. I think for most people though, you marinate in it for a while. You sit in it, you ponder it, you listen, you roll it over in your mind that Jesus would die for you. And one day you say, I believe this. But the way that you receive this after hearing it is you make peace with God. Why does God come to make peace? Because at one point we were enemies of God. Romans 5 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. If you, if before you were a Christian, you were an enemy of God. And if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, we position ourselves as his enemies. And we do this in multiple ways. Sometimes it is just straight up anger and hate. Maybe you really struggle with the idea of God. And you, and you would classify it as just, outright opposition. For most people, it's not that. It's just apathy. I'm just kind of going about my life, doing my thing. It's a a self-reliance that I don't really need you. But here's how you make peace with God is you admit that. God, I was once your enemy, and while I was still yet a sinner, you, Christ, died for me. You admit that and surrender your life to Jesus. And what this allows you to do when you've made peace with God is it allows you to make peace with other people. Maybe the reason that you're struggling to forgive someone is you're struggling to remember that God has forgiven you. We make peace with God. And then lastly, fear not. What makes you afraid? Some people, it's guilt. I just just haven't done enough. Some, it's shame. I don't like who I am. Some, it's it's this fear of the future. And when you hear the words fear not, it doesn't just mean to say say whatever. Like whatever, circumstances, you know, I'm just gonna tuck my head in the sand and my problems go away. The reality is, is when you trust Jesus, your problems are still there. But the difference is, is there's someone you can turn to when life falls apart. There's someone you can turn to when you get news that, isn't good. There's someone you can turn to when you're hurting and worry because what casts out fear? Love. 1 John 4 says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. And this is the good news. The good news that for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord out of his great love for us. As we close, I just want to just say this quick quote from C.S. Lewis. He wrote this in his book, The Four Loves. He said, to love is to be vulnerable. And there's never been anyone more vulnerable than Jesus who would come and give his life to the extent that it would be for us And so when you think about the Christmas story, you think about the birth of Jesus and the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, the question is, is is that old story familiar to you like it's just in the background of your life? Or are you wondering at the grace of God? Have you given yourself wholly and fully to the Jesus who was born and lived and died and rose again? Let's pray.